This morning, once again, we're in a series where we're looking at the life of David. If you can turn me down just a little bit, Mike. Thank you. We're looking at the life of David where he is found by Samuel, the prophet, in the sheep pen. He comes forth and Samuel anoints him to be the future king of Israel. This morning we find David having been in the courts of Saul, the king, the reigning king now of Israel, on the run. And he is in the wilderness pursued by a jealous and envious Saul. Saul wants to take David's life because he knows that he is going to be the future king. And he wants his name, his lineage to be on the throne. We have a very unique situation this morning. This is one of two counts. The other is found in 1 Samuel 24. But one of two counts where David has an opportunity to destroy his enemy. He has an opportunity to kill and to slay one who is trying to slay and kill him. But he does not. And the theme is found in verse 9 and then later in verse 23 when David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, do not kill him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? In other words, he's saying here is one that has the hand of God yet upon him and I will not take him out of God's hand And deal with him with my hands. I am going to show him mercy. I am going to give life. And and protect life. Rather than take life. Back in uh, 1 Samuel 24. At that instance. When Saul realizes. That David had an opportunity to kill him. And did not. He shouted after David these words. You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. For if a man finds his enemy, will he not let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. Saul looks at David's actions and he's saying, That's the act, the actions, that's the handiwork, that's the reflection of a righteous person. A righteous person is this. A righteous person is very, very simply, is one that does things right. They do the right things in the right manner, in the right time, for the right purposes. We are folks, if you're a Christian this morning, we toss around that term righteous and righteousness. And we believe that we're not righteous in and of ourselves. But now that we have become Christians, God, through Christ, has made us righteous. He has taken the perfect life of Christ and he's transferred that to us. Now with that, stay with me, 
Now with that new newness of life, that transfer of Jesus' record, we're now growing and learning to be the sons and daughters that he is transforming us to be. And we will grow and be in the process of transformation for the remainder of our life until death and then eternal life where it will be completed. We are to be about the work of righteousness in our life. We are, this morning, to do right to those who do us wrong. Let's keep it simple this morning. And I want to show you three instances where David does the right thing. He acts righteously toward one who intends him wrong. You're going to see this morning how David treats one who does him wrong as a fellow man. And then, how does he treat an enemy? And then finally, how does he treat a fool? Let's look at the Scriptures this morning. David, at this, in this instance, David is with one of his warriors. And a very, very accomplished and expert soldier he is. Abishai. Abishai and David go down into the camp and Saul would have been sleeping with all of the army around him. But they slept a deep, deep sleep and David and Abishai snuck to the very center of the camp and to Saul's bedside. And there, there's a spear so that Saul could jump up and he would be ready to grab his spear and go defend himself or go fight, and a water jar. So David is here at at Saul's bedside, and Abishai says, says, David, look, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Let me pin him to the earth with a stroke of the spear. I won't strike him twice. And that's when David gives out of a, out of his understanding of God, out of his theology, he gives his understanding for dignity of human life. It's called the Imago Dei. Now, an anointed person, anointed person would be a prophet or a priest or a king who was specially set aside by the hands of God through by being anointed. He's set apart. But David knows that all of life, all of mankind, all the sons and daughters of God, every male, every female, is given life. And that life is to be treated with dignity because we're made in the image of God. Genesis one twenty six is where we see God saying, It is a holy trinity there in the garden. As he's made all the creatures and he's made all of the vegetation. He's made this world. And he says, now let us make man. And how shall we make man? Let us make man in our image. Our likeness. He will reflect us. We're going to put a part of ourselves into 
this creation of man such that he will be different than the animals. He'll be different than any other act of creation. Genesis 9, 6, then now man is fallen, as Barry shared with us earlier. This is now post-Adam in the garden. So now man is sinful. And we, we now find that the, the, the country is growing and man is sinful. So does he still bear the image of God? Yes. In fact, God says, do not murder, do not shed blood. For that is not ordinary blood that you're shedding. That's blood that bears my stamp, my hand, my handiwork. So that if you shed blood, then your blood is going to be demanded. For God made man in his own image. And then finally in James 3, chapter 9, James, the, Jesus of brother, the, the brother of Jesus, will use this in speaking to the church. It's as if James were standing before you at Two Rivers today and said, Brothers, don't speak ill of one another. Don't discourage one another. Don't curse one another. Instead, bless and encourage. Because do you not know that everyone that you encounter bears the image of God? God's hand is upon them. C.S. Lewis explained it like this in his fantastic work, and I encourage you to download it. It's just a short article. It's really a, a sermon that he gave. It's called The Weight of Glory. And I'm going to read to you a little bit more than what is on the screen. C.S. Lewis is talking in his sermon about this weight, this burden that we have and the weight is this knowledge that influences us that every fellow, every one of our fellow man is destined to spend eternity somewhere. And every fellow man, every human being that we come in contact with bears the image of God. And that has consequences. That's a weight that we carry. How do I treat others how do I treat my fellow man? It may be possible for each of us to think about his own potential glory hereafter and to think of it in the excess. But it's hardly possible for us to think too often or too deeply about the glory of my neighbor. The load or the weight or the burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the ground will be and the backs of the proud would be broken. It is a serious thing, serious, to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most interesting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of those destinations. So, David 
when he sees Saul, he sees his fellow man. He sees a human being. He sees someone that has the mark of God upon him as he's an image bearer. And as that, he says, that is enough to treat him with dignity. I would love to go on a side road here and speak about the right to life. To speak about the great heinousness of the, the sin of abortion in that it strikes against the very image of God. The weakest, those that we would, we have to get somewhere in our mind to say they're not actually human in order to be able to do it. But if we become conscious and say even the youngest life conceived and yet in the womb, that life is an image bearer. And it's to be treated with dignity. I would also say, and I never, again, I can't go down the side road, but it's not, it is not unlikely that there is someone here today who's had an abortion, or perhaps a male who has been a part of that. I want to tell you, you still bear the image of God. And with God, there is forgiveness. And with God, there is restoration. And with God, there is healing. Because you're His image bearer. And He looks to you and He would now restore your dignity. But it means those that are mentally and emotionally ill. It means those that are different races, of different skin colors. It means different genders, different cultures. If they are a walking human being, then they are worthy to be treated with dignity. They deserve it. And God says it begins when you see them as image bearers. But David goes more. He not only does the right thing by those that wrong him by treating them as a fellow man, a fellow image bearer, giving them the dignity that God has shown and given to him, he shows us how to treat an enemy by not giving him what he does deserve. This enemy deserves death. But David does not give him death. Now, Abishah must have noticed that David... When he stood there, we don't know the, 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 the look that he had, but I'm going to suspect that David looked upon Saul with dignity and respect. He didn't stick out his tongue at him. He wasn't enraged. He certainly wasn't quick to grab the spear. But there in the dark and the quiet, Abishai must have whispered frantically to him, All right, look, look, I'll do it. I'll do it. I can kill him. I can dispatch him with one blow. I don't need a bunch of ah, 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 and wake up all the camp. I just one right through the heart. He's gone. And look at Abishaw's theology. Look at his religion. Um, Alexander McLaren, the great Scottish preacher, says here about Abishaw. He says, Abishaw was religious too. After a strange, fierce fashion, reasoning that it would be a kind of sin to not kill him. Oh, how many bloody tragedies that same unnatural alliance of religion and hate 
has varnished over. There are those, there are many that are in Abishai's camp. And that is when you come upon your enemy, when you have any opportunity, in fact, you may want to make an opportunity, then you remove the threat. You kill your enemy. David risked his life in getting to Saul's side. And now he is risking his life every day that his enemy lives. But he says, no, I'm not going to give him what he deserves. Abishai's religion says, well, look, God's, this, is, this is your enemy. And God has put him in your hands. God has put him in, into our hands. Let's dispatch him. Note David's response. David appeals to the hand of God. David says in verse 10, he says, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. So how does a righteous man treat his enemy? He looks and he says, I'm not going to take out of God who is the creator and the judge over this man. I'm not going to take the case out of his hands and put it in my hands. I'm not going to take matters into my own hand and slay God's anointed. I'm not going to remove the threat. Because, and he gives three things. Things that he would have thought about. He says, the Lord could strike him down just like that. The Lord could remove my enemy. Number two, or his day will come to die. There will come a day, as is destined for all of us, where he will die. And then the last thing is, he could go down in battle. There could be a battle in the very near future, and he could die. But that is in the Lord's hands. Notice what he does. He's not completely passive here. He is full of faith and trust that God is well aware of the circumstances. God is well aware that this is his enemy. And he says, I will trust that God. And I will trust his hand. What David does is he gives him a pass. And not giving him what he deserves, death, he actually gives him life. He sustains his life. He intercedes with the religious fanatic Abishai, as it were, saying, hey, this is God's will. You know, God gave him into the handless. Take this enemy out. But he intercedes. He holds Abishai back. He looks upon Saul and he gives him a pass. He shows him mercy. He forgives him. Can I say just a word about forgiveness. I think <clears throat> that it's important that you recognize that the, the chief characteristic of a Christian, of one who is righteous, is both how quick and how successfully they forgive others. And that it's fueled by their own forgiveness of sin. David here models forgiveness. 
Let me give you a do, let me give you a don't, and then let me give you a how. Because the sermon is not completely about forgiveness. It's about how we treat those that have done us wrong. But one way that we treat our enemies who have wronged us, we forgive them. We forgive our enemies, even as we who were once enemies have been forgiven of God. The first thing to do is that we do forgive them. We actually forgive them. Whether it is by a pronouncement to them or it's a private prayer on our part, we actually look at this, our enemy, or this person that has wronged us, and we declare and we pronounce, I forgive you. We let it go. We recognize that fear is very, very costly. That fear just, I mean, that forgiveness is very costly. And forgiveness by David being granted to Saul, Saul could rise up and kill him. He may not make it out of the camp. Or it could be another day and he could be found in the cave. And he knows that Saul, he's at risk of Saul slaying him. But that was a cost that he was willing to pay to forgive him. David knew something else. As he looked at his enemy, his choice, I believe, was shaped that he did not want to be like Saul. Forgiveness is costly, but non-forgiveness is more costly. Let me say that again. Forgiveness is costly. It costs us something to let somebody go. It costs us something to have our enemies still around, but to have given them pardon. It costs us something, but it will cost you more if you harbor enmity and ill will, if you harbor or hold that debt and refuse to cancel it, it can change you into Saul. David could have very easily become Saul by not forgiving his enemy, but by slaying anybody that dared to stand against him and his anointing and his throne. So the do is to actually forgive someone. The don't, the don't of forgiveness is don't rehearse it. Don't rehearse it to other people. Don't rehearse, um, don't rehearse it to that person. Don't rehearse it to yourself. It's not forgiveness if you go and say, well, you really blew it by me. You really messed up. You have really hurt me. You have, you have impacted my life. You have sinned against me. And, uh, well, I, I forgive you. I, I forgive you, you know, because I'm a Christian. I, I, I forgive you. And then you go and you rehearse it to other people. Not the act of pardon and forgiveness, but the act of your righteousness toward them. That's called self-righteousness. Forgiveness is fueled by this humility of seeing that I am forgiven. We don't rehearse it. Jesus Christ told the parable of the unmerciful servant where there was a, a one of the servants of the king was oh, he owed the king a great debt that he could not repay. And the king removed the debt at his own cost. He canceled 
the debt. But then that servant went to a lesser servant underneath him that owed him a very small penny ante debt. And because he couldn't pay, instead of canceling the debt, he had him thrown into prison. He had him thrown into debtor's prison. And the king called him back and he said, how could you do that? I forgave you a great debt. How could you not forgive someone a smaller debt? And so we find that the how is to be cognizant, ever cognizant, of the great debt that we, were for, that we have been forgiven of. Instead of giving us death, God has given us life. Instead of even allowing us to continue alone without Him, He has come to us and He has canceled our debt at His own cost. And then He looks to us and He says, Now as my image bearers, as my representatives, as people in my likeness, forgive. Forgive your enemies. Don't give them death, but give them life. And then lastly, I want you to see how David treats a fool. And this is, this is seen down in verse 21 where Saul is now talking. And Saul in verse 21 says, I've sinned, return my son David, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious. My life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. This is a huge confession on Saul's part. When we think about doing something foolish, we think about doing something mindless and unintentional. Oh, man, boy, did I, I, did, I did a very foolish thing. What fool meant here is like the fool says in his heart that there is no God. It's the fool who says it's willful, it's intentional, it's malicious, it's sinful. And Saul is saying, I've been that kind of fool. I have sinned against you, David. I have been willful. I have been an enemy to you. I have my sin. I have been a sinner who has impacted you by my foolish acts. How do you treat someone? How do you treat someone who sins against you? How do you treat someone who has not simply demonstrated one act of foolishness, but multiple acts. They continue to sin against you. How do you treat someone like that? Well, the Scripture, we, just for the sake of space, we didn't include verses 17 through 20. But in verse 18, we, we see that not only did David speak from the hillside with the spear and the water bottle in his hand to say, I was there, I did not do you any harm. Not only does he speak to Abner and taunt him and saying, you didn't look after like a good bodyguard, you didn't look after Saul very well, but he also speaks to Saul. Saul, in verse 17, hears the voice, and as he comes out of sleep, he says, that's David. And then David doesn't speak, he doesn't tell Saul, but he begins to direct Saul with questions. He confronts Saul. He doesn't confront Saul 
with telling him, he doesn't give him a mini homily, he doesn't give him a sermon, he doesn't nag him, he doesn't, he doesn't condemn his actions. He begins to direct Saul's thinking by asking diagnostic questions. He asks a couple of questions in verse 18. Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? Now again, make this practical. Think about someone who is doing you wrong. They are sinful against you and their sin is impacting your life. Do you go and tell them off? Do you go and tell others in the church about their behavior? Do you do nothing? That's the other passive thing is you just wash your hands of a person. That's another way to not do right by someone that is doing you wrong. Or do you lovingly Confront them. And when you confront them lovingly, motivated for their good. Remember, David is not after Saul's demise. He could have just said nothing, but instead he begins to ask thought-provoking heart questions. What is my Lord? Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? What have I done? What evil is on my hands? He wants to make Saul think, and he begins to direct Saul, Saul's heart, to think. Recently, I've been thinking about four great questions. Four great questions that motivate me in my encounters and in my conversations with other people, with other image bearers, with my fellow man, my encounters with my enemy, or my encounter with people that sin against me. Number one, I think about the question, why did Jesus come to earth? Jesus came to earth to reconcile man to God and God to man by coming to bring peace at the cost of his own life for the granting of the forgiveness of our sins. But he came to restore us as God's creatures, as his sons and daughters, to be his image bearer. Why am I here on earth? Well, as an image bearer and as a Christian, I, like God, like Christ, am now on a mission to help men and women be reconciled with God and to see that through, again, that that is made possible by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. What are the only man-made things in heaven? almost hesitate to answer this one and let you over lunch noodle on this one. The only man-made thing in heaven are the scars on Jesus' hands and feet and in his side. We're reading in Revelation that he will bear those scars as trophies, having died in our place, having been wounded in our place. Lastly, What are the only heaven-bound things on earth? What are the only things here that are bound for heaven? And we find that it's our fellow man. And not necessarily heaven for all eternity, but where they'll face judgment. The only eternal things in this world is our fellow man.
Why did Christ come? Why am I here? What, is the, what are the man-made things in heaven? What's heaven bound? What's eternally bound? That causes me to look at my relationships and my conversations with more intent. I'm more intentional about it. I promise you that if you will approach, not to tell them off, but to direct the heart to think and to consider those who are foolish in your life, whose sin impacts you, if you will approach them, and if you will have, seek to have a conversation to begin to direct their heart, if they perceive that you don't have your own agenda, if they perceive that you really love them and have their best interest in mind, then they will melt. They will melt. What we see David doing is very similar to what we see Christ doing on Golgotha and the cross. We see Him not slaying His enemies, but we see Him not simply risking His life to let His enemies survive. We see Him losing His life at the hands of those that are His enemies. But even as He is dying, He is committing us to the pardon and the forgiveness of our sins if we but would receive it. If we will look at that mercy as Saul must have looked at the, the mercy of David and said, and say to ourselves, how foolish I have been with my life. How sinful I've been with my life in the face of one who has repeatedly shown me mercy. It will melt you and it will undo you and it will change you. From this point on, Saul and David will never meet again. From this point on, David will go one way and Saul will go another. But Saul ends the pursuit. He ends the pursuit of David's life. This table this morning, once again, we rehearse how a righteous man, Jesus Christ, acted to fellow man, human creatures that are made in the image of God. How he reacted righteously to his enemies and how he has reacted righteously even to those that our sin impacts him. How? By the showing again of his mercy and his love and his directing our hearts by the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's a lot to think about. But I ask this morning, as we prepare to take from this table, that we would see this table as fuel, as energy, as strength to forgive others. Lord, perhaps you've brought someone to mind this morning. Someone that we 
pull out of our own debtor's prison that we've got them locked in the cell. We'll pull them out every once in a while and we'll just torture them. We'll rehearse how they treated us um, with such ill will. Lord, would you let us see at this table where you have granted us life, you have granted us a restoration of dignity, You continue to direct our heart to grow and to be transformed. To do things right to those that do us wrong. That we would see you releasing us and giving us grace and life from this table. And then that will fuel us this day to follow with a prayer, with a conversation, with a confrontation of love to those, Father, that have done us wrong, that have met us ill. Fuel us, strengthen us, even as we see it played out again on this table, that we might forgive others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.